Hey listeners, one of our goals of this podcast is to build a vibrant community around the business of wine. We've been delivering compelling and educational content for two years. We have really appreciated the outreach and engagement from you, our dear listeners, and a number of you have asked how you can help support the show. We love making the show and keeping the quality high, so we decided to launch a Patreon account where you can get access to our full library of episodes with more benefits to come. We've set the contribution to $5 a month to encourage as many people as possible to participate. Go to patreon.com slash xchateau to sign up. We'll put a link in our show notes and on xchateau.com, and we'll be announcing new patrons with each episode. Welcome to X Chateau. X Chateau. The podcast that navigates the business of wine with unique perspectives and insights. With your host, Robert Vernick and Peter Young. Welcome to this episode of X Chateau. Today, we're continuing our series on the future of wine retail. And today, we're doing it from the grocery store perspective. Our guest is Curtis Mann, Master of Wine, and the group vice president for alcohol at the Albertsons Companies, which includes Albertsons and Safeway. Curtis, welcome to the show. Thanks, Rob and Peter, for having me. I was wondering if you could give Peter and I a brief overview of your background and your journey in wine. Yeah, so I started kind of my wine career after getting my MBA from UC Davis, focusing on wine marketing and accounting. And then I worked a number of jobs in marketing. I was marketing manager for Trinquero Family Estates. I had some great brands like Menage a Trois and Folia Du. And then I took a position in retail, which was really interesting for a small retail kind of on-premise, off-premise operation. And then from there, I went to go work for IRI in the category management. So IRI is a big data company. I worked in their wine and spirits insights division. And then from that position, I went to the Rayleigh supermarket chain where I was for eight years. Last year, after becoming a master of wine, I moved on into Albertsons. And that's where I am now. A lot of listeners may not appreciate the extent to which grocery wine sales are a huge part of the overall wine market. Can you give them a sense of how big groceries relative to all wine retail? Yeah, so the data is not always completely clear because there are some retailers don't report out data. But if you think about what we call the multi-outlet wine market in the United States, out of, if you think of the total wine market between 60 and $70 billion, multi-outlet's about 12 to $13 billion, depending on when you take the previous timeline in there. And it's probably even bigger, but without some of the reporting retailers, but it's a rather large section of the total overall industry in the United States. So the Albertsons Companies covers over 20 different grocery store brands, including Albertsons, Safeway, and Vons, totaling around 2,200 stores or over 2,200 stores, which has roughly $69 billion in total grocery sales. I'm curious, though, for Albertsons as a massive public company, can you give our listeners a sense of the total scale at which Albertsons impacts the wine market? How important is wine to the Albertsons companies? So it is an important part of our business. Unfortunately, as a public company, I can't tell you exactly how important, but it is a key aspect of the business. It's a key aspect from sales, and it's also a key aspect from driving customer loyalty. Wine is one of those categories where people come to a retailer because of it. So it's important for us. You know, We have 1,800 stores that carry wine. So we have wine in almost every one of our stores, You know, with the exception of some rules and laws in certain states. And you know, in a lot of different stores, we have different sizes. you know. So we'll have stores with upwards of 3,000 SKUs, stock keeping units, basically. And then some stores that maybe a little bit more value, we might have a lot smaller selection. So it's a big portion and an important part of the kind of what we call the fresh departments in the grocery store. So, you know, us, deli, produce, meat, creating that what we call like perimeter sale for the customer. 
And in terms of the brands, because you cover a range of brands here, and you have a unique perspective. I'm curious, do all the brands think of wine in the same way? Like, for example, Albertsons versus Safeway versus Vons, are they all targeting the same kind of like skew plan in terms of like what they're going to try to sell to the consumers? Or are they all looking at slightly different segments? In general, our chain, we have, I believe it's 25 different banners, might be even more now. We generally trend premium. So a lot of our stores have a kind of a higher end wine selection than you would expect in your classic grocery store. And it's not always consistent according to banner. But we do have stores in very high demographic areas. And there we have to provide what you would experience in a wine shop. And then we do have some that are in more you know, moderate and value areas where we need to be consistent and available on the major brands that maybe customers are looking for. So it really varies more according to kind of demographics than even banner. If you go into some of our stores in Idaho, for example, we have some of the most prettiest stores in the whole country in Boise. And so there's, that's the Albertsons Banner in Southern California and pavilions. We have some amazing selections down there too. So, you know, it's not banner specific, but it's more demographics. Got it. Okay. So you're dialing it in per location. Since you mentioned you're targeting premium, you're using the Nielsen IRI price segments to define that. And maybe you could tell our listeners what premium means exactly. Yeah, I mean, I'm using it in the general term. We do use the IRI price segments to do analysis. Price segments are an important way of analyzing your set. Premium usually at this point is kind of that $9 plus if you use the price segments. That's the way we think of it. And a lot of our trend has been that direction, actually even further than $9 plus, you know, to $12, $13. And so that's kind of what I mean when I say premium. What are some of the top selling brands across the Albertsons companies? Well, you have the classics. I mean, you have your Barefoot and your Candle Jackson. And then, you know, you have kind of up and coming brands like Butter Chardonnay and just Butter in general. They're not just Chardonnay anymore. Josh. So you're having this like kind of a premiumization effect in some of the, and they're not small anymore, but big national brands. Those are doing quite well. We also have, you know, a lot of imported brands doing quite well. New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc. Brands within that segment are doing extremely well. Of course, there's some shortages coming up, but those are a really big portion of our sales. They were. I think that the misnomer, at least the the wine category is so diversified that even if those brands are big, they're still only a small percentage of the market. So in the end, they're very important to our business, but there's a reason we have 1,500, 3,000 SKUs in some stores. Got it. In terms of trends, obviously, wine buying seems like it changes quite frequently in terms of habits. What are you seeing at your stores in terms of overall trends? Well, we're seeing this call to authenticity, which is, I think, the part of the premiumization. You have these customer base that wants to know what's in their wine, wants to know where their wine's coming from. They're looking for appellated wines and sustainability, organic, things of that sort. So that's becoming a, a huge trend. Convenience, obviously, is big. And convenience, I think, started with the canned wine trend, then COVID threw a little bit of a wrench into that. And now what we're seeing is there's this, it's kind of across all of alcohol, but this big convenience push for, you know, seltzers and ready to drinks. And so that does include the wine category, maybe not as much as beer and spirits, but it is an important part to that. And then when I talk about premiumization, you know, that 10 to $20 space is really important, but even 30 to 50 to $100. I mean, there's certain places where we sell out of our temperature control case more Bordeaux than anybody else. High-end Bordeaux, right? Or or high-end Napa Cab. So there's a tremendous demand for that too. You can see those luxury segments just keep going. I think especially the biggest trend that we saw during COVID was this return to cooking and people thinking, well, geez, I've got to drink some nice wine with all this great beef I'm buying. And so they're coming to us as the one-stop shop. So we've seen a lot of those trends, that premiumization trend kind of flow with the COVID situation. 
Yeah, it makes sense if you're seeing more interest in organics and sustainable, as well as Appalachian-based wines, that that would be driving that kind of average price point up over time. In terms of restaurants opening up again, I'm curious on, have you seen a reversal of some of the COVID trends or do you see them sustaining? If we created new habits for your consumers, or is this kind of regressing as we start to get back to the food and beverage scene? Well, I mean, there has been a little bit of regression. So, you know, we're glad to see our restaurant folks open because they drive a lot of the innovation in the industry. And so we definitely don't want to see them closed. But we're still seeing some pretty robust sales. I think what's happened is that customers, they haven't completely returned to the restaurant scene. And some people are still a little worried about COVID. And I think that the whole cook at home has become somewhat sticky. And people are thinking, well, I know how to cook now. I can come to Albertsons for some great selection of food. And so I'm just going to fill in with my wine selection. And so we're seeing some, I'm not going to say that it was like the numbers on top of the numbers were amazing, but they're still pretty impressive considering that you have, you know, places where you have 80 to 90% of the restaurants back open. So something we've seen with a lot of people we've been talking to that people are buying better wines during COVID. So now that we're starting to see some of the food and beverage scene get back, are you starting to see that price trend either flatline or regress a little bit in terms of premiumization that you were seeing over the last year? No, actually, in some cases, we're seeing it accelerate somewhat. So I mean, that's a little shocking. And it's also going to eventually lead to some out of stocks because there's only so much champagne, right? And there's only so much appellated Chablis or Napa Cab, you know, so there are definitely going to be some challenges there. We're definitely seeing that customers is they were going out to eat. Maybe now they have more expendable incomes. They're not going out to eat as much. So they've decided to spend it on wine, which is good news for the wine industry. But it's going to create some challenges, I think, in the future. So what do the customers look like? I mean, I guess for the stores in general, but particularly if you have any information on the wine buyers and how does that differ from people who buy wine at wine specialty stores or other places? So I don't have any data for my competition set, but my current set, our customer is generally uh, kind of the Gen X baby boomer customer. And then a lot of our new customers are millennials. So we're having this whole kind of the older customer base is buying a lot of wine, but they're buying less wine. And we're having this millennial kind of group of customers buying more and more wine, but they don't tend to be as loyal to the wine category. And they also like a lot of different things. And they also don't necessarily have as much expendable income. So they like premium wines and they are buying premium, but they're not buying the 50 to I shouldn't say that, you know, it's there's some of them doing that, but there's a lot of push in the 10 to $20 space in that group of people. And their preferences are different than the Gen X and baby boomers. So it's creating a lot of complications within the store because it's not the easiest thing to reset a grocery store shelf to meet three different preferences of drinkers out there. How do you think about changing that set to meet those changing demographics? Well, I think we need to be smart about which categories we increase and which ones we shrink and how we do it and not looking at just, hey, these are the current sales and looking backwards, but thinking about what things are going to look like in three to five years. So that's why I like to build my strategy out that far is to think, okay, well, what will this category really look like? I can't predict it for sure, but if I can at least get it kind of right or partially right, then I'll be way out in front of my competition. So that's where, you know, understanding what the current trends are and maybe wines that are similar to other wines and what's the style preference these days. That's, I think, where as a retailer, you can really get out in front of your competition. You mentioned that the millennials are generally lower price points. Does it just ladder up like Gen X is higher and baby boomers is even higher than that? It is. I mean, the the baby boomers have a lot more expendable income. So, of course, they spend the most on wine. 
And then you also have to realize, and then what we all know is that the 20% of our customers or 80% of our spend. And so those customers are still buying more bulk and volume versus the millennial customers who's maybe not buying wine as much. But over time, I imagine they'll start to, as they build economic strength, they will spend more money on wine. Some of your stores have, I think, really successful promotions, like 30% off a six-pack of wines. I think I've bought that before at Safeway and other places. Is discounting the biggest driver of sales for your customers, or is it more selection or something else? So as a retailer, I have to be careful talking about pricing. But I'd say overall, from perspective of the wine industry, is that because there's no brand loyalty, or not no, but there's not a lot of brand loyalty, customers sometimes default to price. And so promotion is always a big part of the business. I feel like, you know, it's important as a retailer to think, obviously, that's one of the four P's. It's one of the levers. But is it the most important? I don't know. We could debate back and forth on it. In certain locations, it is. In other locations, I think you have to consider how the P of price works with the P of product and how do you manage your product selection so you're not so promotional. So it's just a general struggle that every retailer deals with. I'm curious on how you think about the selection in your stores and the mix that you have. One of the things I've noticed with Safeway, they have that local tag on a lot of their things, even from even on the alcohol side, it seems like there's national brands, then there's stuff that's kind of more regional, local based. Like, So how do you think about that mix when you go look at the mix of stores that you have across the Albertsons companies? When we think about what kind of goes on a shelf at an Albertsons or a Safeway, it's, we're thinking about what does that item provide that's incremental to the customer? So we have 1,500 items on a shelf or 2,000 in some cases. What does that item mean to the customer that's different than the item that's next to it? Is it just another Chardonnay? Or is it Chardonnay that has a specific type of style that the customer wants? Or is there a story behind the bottle that's being told? Well, is there a location? Is it from, you know, an appellated area? You know, all those type of things. And so it's really important for us. I think that the key is that every item holds a importance to the customer and that we basically remove redundancy from the shelf. So we don't have the same items over and over and over again. And that's, I think, you know, if you're interested in selling to somebody like an Albertsons, the key thing to tell us is why is this important to the customer and why is it important to our customer? And then why would that create a situation where the customer wants to come into our store to buy the item? Too often I hear people, well, its sales are great. Like, well, okay, but you know, what is it doing? How is it changing people's attitudes about wine or getting them excited about your product or whatever's out there that's really different and unique about your item? Because I could put up a whole shelf of Chardonnay and it would sell great, but it won't necessarily attract new customers if I don't think about its uniqueness and how it's different to each customer. So in terms of a winery that wants to get their wine onto your shelves, what does it take to land a spot on a shelf in Safeway or Albertsons? Or how long is the process? Like if you say you're a producer, what does it take to get either a trial and kind of be able to roll out regionally or nationally? Yeah, I'd say the first thing you need to do is have the four P's put together, right? So when you come to us or you're thinking about selling to us, like, do you have all of the different parts of those put together? Do you know what your distribution network is? Because that's super important for a large grocery retailer, right? Is your pricing worked out? What does the product look like? If you're going on the shelf, like, where do you fit? All those things. So to have that worked out, you really need to be buttoned up for coming to us. And part of that too includes purchasing data. You don't have to buy the whole suite of offerings from somebody like an IRR or Nielsen, but you need to be in the know. You need to know what's going on inside of our stores. And then once you pitch that, usually we pitch it out in advance, you know, somewhere between six and four months because we have to write the shelf sets in advance. So it's not like a super quick process, right? So you pitch for 
essentially the fall you pitch for the spring, the spring you pitch for the fall. And every division is a little different. So different parts of the country work a little bit different just because of rules and regulations. So those are the things that you really have to put together. I see so many great wines that have like three of the four Ps. And usually the one that's not worked out is distribution. And we can kind of help you with that. But if you think about us, we've got 1,500 or 3,000 items to manage across a store. It can be really challenging if you don't have one of the four Ps put together. And then we've got to spend a bunch of time figuring out how to manage that. You know, and that creates all sorts of mayhem usually. And then you got to think too, we're a grocery store, right? So we have a lot of other things. So we have 40,000 items in the store. So we've got to manage not just wine, we've got to manage everything else too. So it might be easier for a liquor chain or something to manage that because they just manage alcohol. But for us, we have to have all of our P's and Q's put together essentially before we go to market. And how do you think about that in terms of on a more regional local scale where maybe one of those smaller brands doesn't have that all buttoned up, but they make good wine and they're known locally. So how do you handle that or bring those into the mix on some other local stores? Because you said you dialed it in by location. That's true. We do have, and one of the great things about us is that we're locally great, nationally strong is our kind of our tagline. And we give the divisions a lot of autonomy to think about what the local wine selection should look like. So I mean, I'm pretty darn confident in our Portland stores. We have an amazing selection of Pinot Noir. I mean, you walk in there, you're like, oh, this is great, right? Like this Oregon Pinot, we know what we're doing. Washington, you know, like our Hagen stores have a great selection of Washington Cab and, you know, Southern California, right? Great selection of Paso Robles. So we're doing that at that level. And we will, if you have the other three Ps worked out and they're pretty amazing. And the one problem you're having is distribution because we understand it. It's a challenging three-tier market we will make some exceptions to the rule. But in general, we still like you to have at least some have worked out. <laughs> right. So we're not just building something from scratch, you know, because you've got a lot of paperwork you got to fill out. There's a lot of insurance and all those other things. It's not just turnkey. I'm curious, does that differ at all for a smaller high-end chain like Andronico's? Is that a slightly different strategy there for selection? There are, like our flagship stores, a little bit different. You know, that's when we say those 3,000 items, you know, that we're talking about flagship stores like Andronico's or Pavilions or our, our Market Street stores and Albertsons. And so, yes, we do make even more exceptions in those stores. So we do find even higher end or more eclectic offerings. And I think the one requirement, the one thing that we have to do, well, the two things is that you have to have a license to sell wine, of course. <laughs> and then the second thing is, is that it has to be a UPC code on it somehow. So other than that, we pretty much figure it out. But that's a very small subsection of our chain, really, those flagship stores. Right. In terms of the customers, in terms of what they value, in terms of selection, like what do you think the average customer is looking for when it walks into a store and is looking for a selection? Like what is that kind of breakdown of they should see X number of things or? Yeah, so this is getting more and more complicated because I feel like our customer base is diverging you know, we have this whole group of customer base that's going for classic wine styles or maybe a touch sweeter, I call that classic now, I guess these days, a touch sweeter, a little bit residual sugar. And then we have a whole new customer base that's like looking for extreme acid and wines like Liquid Light have done quite well where like you have this real bright acidity and then lower alcohol. So it's hard to say these days. I mean, really, I think what you want to do is when a guest walks into your store is that you want to provide the diversity and selection that gives them the confidence that you know what you're doing. And that if they walk to the Italy section, you have, especially in a high demographic store, you have a Dolcetto, you have a Barbera, you have a couple Barolos, so that they're not going, okay, well, wait, I really love Piedmont, but you're missing that selection. You know, and that's key in California too, like what different appellations of Napa do you have? Or that diversity of selection that cues the customer to tell them, hey, we know what we're doing, trust us. 
You know, and then the additional kind of piece to that is then throwing the beverage steward on top of it and getting that beverage steward engaged with the customer and then providing the selections so the beverage steward can relay that information to our customers that, hey, look, this is why this wine is special. And so that's what we strive to do. And that kind of all builds back to what I was talking about, the incrementality, right, is I don't have a bunch of redundant products on the shelf. Think about why each wine is different and how it offers up something unique to the customer. In general, are they looking to, when they walk into the wine aisle, are they looking to explore? Are they looking to just like find something they know and grab it and go? Are they looking for someone like little stickers that explain a little bit more background that the maybe the back label wouldn't tell them? Or are they looking to find someone knowledgeable that will kind of help guide them on their process? Like I'm assuming that varies greatly by store location. Pretty much all of the above. Yes. <laughs> That's what makes the wine category so complicated is, is that there's so many different reasons for why people want to buy there's the reason if they want to buy a specific wine. There's also the occasion base, like they want to buy for a certain occasion. A lot of wine sales are because somebody's taking something to a party. And so that drives activity in a certain way. It's actually quite hard to say. It's like you have all these divergent factors as to why people want to buy something. And a lot of them I can't control. So, you know, I kind of default back to what's the best I can do? What's the best offering we can make? And how can we help you find the wine the best way? forward, I'd say the one thing that really is promising for me is that the exploration in the wine category, and I think it also has partially to do with the premiumization, is really dramatic. So the amount of people taking the WSCT, especially where I'm based in Northern California, but across the Western United States and probably the rest of the United States is darn impressive. And so that's really good news, I think, for the future of our category, if people really know what they're drinking and their consumers doing this. This isn't just professionals. I mean, I've taught some WSCT classes and they're basically all consumers. I was thinking, wow, this is pretty darn awesome that somebody sat down and spent the money to just take classes because they were interested in it. So I think you offer some private label wines as part of your selection, including the Signature Reserve brand. Is that an important part of your business? Yeah, so private label is, and we call it our own brands team, is an important part of our business. Our goal really is, and we're kind of in the process of resetting it a little bit, but to really provide the best price to value to our guests. So if the item's somewhat equivalent to a national brand, we want it to taste better. You know, we want it to be higher ranked. And so really what we're doing with our own brands is to try to drive loyalty. We don't have a team of 100 people in my department to, you know, just go out and source wines from all over the world. And so it'll be an important part, but it won't be a dominant part like maybe some other competitive retailers. But we're doing a couple of really interesting things coming up in the future. We're really focused on brands that are going to get scores and really be a draw, you know, that's going to make Albertsons different than almost every other wine retailer out there. And our goal is really built around education. So how do we build these brands that you'd be confident and you can learn about the category through our own brands process? That's really what we're doing. And we've had some great success so far. And I think it's just going to get better and better as we work further and further into the next year or two. How do you keep the supply and keep that going when there are shortages in the bulk market? Because I assume that has a big impact on being able to deliver that high quality per value concept. Yes. So obviously, this is a challenge. And especially now that like customers have traded up and our goal is to go more after Appalated wines, you know, like 2020 in Napa was basically a smoke out and you know, and then 2021 in New Zealand, and then of course, challenges with white wine in France. Yes, it's going to be challenging. I think that the great thing is, is that we have a couple partners that we work with that have access to a lot of different fruit. And the other thing too, is that they're really dialed into some of the best producers. And so far, we found that as long as you have your connections worked out, we can still get some pretty good stuff. Maybe we might have to accept the fact that there might be cases where we run out of something that's super interesting. 
And we're just going to have to adjust to that as retailers. And sometimes it may not be available because it just wasn't enough of it. But I think I'd rather do that than downgrade the fruit quality, just source it from anywhere and then slap a label on it because it doesn't do anything for our stores if we just throw something like that on the shelf. And also it makes our customers lose confidence in us. And if you're running out of a wine um, sellout, do you try to place it in certain stores or is it just is out and it just sells out very quickly? If we catch it soon enough, sometimes we'll reduce the amount of stores it's in temporarily. We'll pull back and say, okay, hey, maybe we don't need this in as many stores. If we don't, then yeah, sometimes we run out of it. We put another wine in its place for temporarily and then we bring it back when it comes back in. And we've done that with quite a few wines. You know, if you think about some of the marquee California producers that only make so much wine, then that's what we have to do. So we've done it before. It is can be painful sometimes, especially some of our guests are like, where is that wine? Uh, well, sorry. But usually if we're out of it, then everyone else is out of it too. So. so the pandemic has led to an acceleration of digital adoption for all industries, including wine, which is typically very traditional. Recently, you guys did an interactive virtual Pinot Noir tasting for your consumers. How did that go? So those virtual tastings are doing extremely well. I'm shocked at how well they do. But we have thousands of people sign up for them. We have a tremendous amount of people attend, go out and buy the wines, which, you know, I'm trying to keep it affordable as much as I can. But sometimes, you know, you want to taste some good wines. Like we had some Belle Gloss on the last tasting and that's not an expensive wine. And so there's a tremendous amount of digital engagement for that. And I think that there's a whole group of customers that live all over the United States that don't get to go to Napa or Sonoma or the Central Coast or Washington or Oregon, but they want to taste the wines and they want to live the wines. And so we've seen tremendous success there. The virtual tasting we did was great. At the divisions, we do virtual tastings that are extremely well attended. We had a burgundy tasting in pavilions that was just absolutely stunning, like amazing. We're tasting a bunch of really nice quality burgundy. A lot of it wasn't super expensive, you know, maybe from secondary appellations, but it was an amazing tasting. So I think that's a tremendous positive. You know, those will continue. Maybe as things open up and we can do more regular tastings, they won't be as dominant, but they still will exist because it provides an opportunity for many of our customers who can't fly to certain locations. So it's something you plan to maintain even once we're fully out of pandemic, whenever that might be. Exactly. Yeah, we're planning on doing once a month or so some educational tastings for our customers, you know, across the United States. And we have a lot of fun, interesting things coming up, a lot of interesting wines that we've sourced that we're going to do a lot of great tastings on. And just for our listeners, those tastings, are they buy, sign up and then join the tasting and then buy the wine afterwards? Or is it buy the wine ahead of time and taste along with you? Generally, you buy the wine ahead of time and then you taste the wine along with us. However, we've actually had quite a number of folks that say, oh, I couldn't make, you know, 530 on a Thursday. And they just go out and buy the wines and then rewatch the YouTube video. So, I mean, I guess that's the best thing about it, right? Is it's not live and it's recorded. I mean, it is live, but then it's recorded. So then you get best of both worlds. So we've seen tremendous opportunities on both sides. You've run several of these now. Do you have takeaways or key points to how do you keep an engaged and interactive audience for an event like this? Yeah, I think that I have a great team on my side that they run the tasting and then they really get the questions. You know, they get a good response of questions from customers. They engage with the customers. They talk to them via the chat. And so I actually thought when the first one of these that we did where I was going to get radio silence and we were just going to talk about Chardonnay and then we're going to get to the end and it's going to be half an hour and it's going to close down. But we had so many questions that it went the full hour. So kind of to me, this is what cues that like interest in wine education and people wanting to learn more about these categories and about the wines themselves. And so I think that's really, again, the key to that being successful is just keep it educational. 
So I am curious because I know the wine industry really pushes, like, let's educate our consumers to kind of bring them up and understand the complexities. It's such a complex space. But I have to imagine with the demographics that you mentioned earlier that you almost need to speak to your different consumer bases in a different way. I'm curious on your thoughts. How do you communicate in a language that will be acceptable to each of those consumer bases? So this is the classic problem, right, is that when you run like these virtual tastings or even tastings in store, and maybe this is what I learned all the way back to my days starting my career inside of a tasting room, you know, before I was really even considering being really in the wine industry, is that you have to find the balance of explaining the concepts like malolactic fermentation in a way that's understandable, but not dumb it down so much that customers get bored. Okay, well, you're just skipping over important parts because they all want to know now, right? They want to tell their friends why this wine's different than another one. They may not understand all the complexity of how the bacteria actually translates, changes the acid, but they need to know the basics to it and what it's similar to. So that's the biggest challenge for me. And I think we've tried to walk the line, you know, of, okay, well, I will explain it up to a point. And then we'll move on. And then if there's a question, then we can get further detailed into it. And I don't know if I do a great job on that or not, but it's one of those things that I think is really important on a wine education side from a grocery retailers. You have to understand there's a lot of people coming into the category that need to learn about it. There's a lot of experts in the category already that want to learn more. So how do you find that kind of in between? And how do you guys see yourself using or leveraging technology to connect with your consumers in the future? Well, I mean, I think a big part of technology is that, you know, everyone's on their phone. So how can we utilize your phone more, get you more wine education on your phone when you're in our stores, ways that we can help you, technology for our beverage stewards so they can help get to the answers quicker so that then they can get to the guest. Okay, this is why this is what this is. So that's obviously big. There's some big picture ideas coming down the pipe, which you know obviously are probably confidential, but there's all sorts of fun stuff going on. We've partnered with Google. We have all sorts of other really innovative things that the e-com team's doing. And so I think there's a lot of potential, especially in the wine category with technology to reduce complexity. And so that's really what we're focusing on. So you mentioned e-com. We've seen a big shift as an industry for a lot more people buying wine online. How does that impact the grocery business and Albertsons? Luckily, Albertsons has always been in the space. You know, we've been an early adopter. And so it's definitely affecting our business. But I think there's a tremendous amount of upside. And so we're working on a lot of different projects to expand our e-commerce structure. The alcohol industry is one of the most challenging, though, because of all the rules and regulations. So one of the things that there is definitely a lot of entrance into the category, but it's a little slower adoption than general merchandise because there's only so many states you can ship to. There's all sorts of rules and regulations in certain states that prevent you from warehousing. So it is a big portion of our future, but there are definitely some constraints that other categories within the store don't face. And are your customers, for where they're allowed to, doing more wine buying online? They are, yes. They do a lot of drive up and go, we call our Doug. And then they also do more delivery where legal. There's some challenges with delivery, but we're doing more and more of it. And we've been successful with that. And, you know, things like Instacart have also been helpful at delivering alcohol. So it's becoming a bigger portion of the sales, but it's still not super large. And I think until we get some key kind of legal challenges out of the way, I don't expect it to be a huge portion of our sales. We've got some hurdles we've got to get through. So what do you think will be the keys to success in the grocery store channel for wine in the coming years? So I think in the future, a lot of this is about what we talked about, the core pieces of making sure that you're offering a selection to your customer base that is providing the selection 
and keeping them in your stores, keeping them excited about your store and how it relates to your seafood and meat selection and your produce selection and your deli selection. So I think that's one of the strategic advantages of grocery, right, is that we sell food and wine is a heavily purchased food object, essentially. It's a natural pairing. And so we need to continue to think of innovative ways to build that business. And the e-com space, like you said, is big. And so we've got to figure out how to clear some hurdles. And I think that addressing some of the convenience factors and some of the things that are happening with people being a little bit more interested, possibly in ready to drinks. How do we address that in the wine category? I'm responsible for all three. So beer, wine, and spirits. So to me, I suppose it doesn't necessarily matter. But if you were in the wine industry, you've got to think of a way, you know, how do I create a product that's like ready to drink, you know, a high noon or something that really is going to inspire customers to come to the wine category. And so I think those are things in the future that we've really got to pay attention to. Just thought of something I was going to ask. So if you don't want to answer, please feel free. I'm curious on what are your thoughts on other brands getting into that seltzer space that are typical wine brands? Is that something that you think is going to be welcomed for consumers and in eventually the positioning so they can step up into their actual wine portfolio? I think the important thing is to think of what is different that you offer, right? Is just releasing another seltzer. I don't know if that does anything, but if there's something that's unique about it, Is there a calorie count that's unique or is there an alcohol percent or is there a taste profile or is there something that's different? Then I think you can be successful. Just a lot of me too releases of items to me is not a successful thought process, but I feel like there's been some really great seltzer releases recently where people are thinking of different types of flavors and all that, that maybe, you know, the wine category can learn from. But I think it's just important that you just don't enter that category just because everyone else is entering it. Got it. So to wrap up the episode, I want to bring it back to a personal note. What was the most memorable wine or two that you've tasted in the past year that has meant something special to you? Oh, boy. Well, I'm trying to think of what I've tasted that, you know, the wines that really make me excited are the ones that over deliver for the price point. And so there's a lot of great wines that I've tasted, especially when you pass the master's wine exam, you get to drink a lot of fancy champagne, which is great. But you know, my favorite wines are probably those burgundies that sit right around $40 retail, $50 retail, some great ones I drank from Olivia Laflave, you know, like Saint Abon, just delicious 2017 wines. So I guess that's what I would say. Those are the things that I find the most exciting. Something that over delivers. It's great because you can translate that into your consumers at the Alpersons companies. Well, thank you, Curtis. We appreciate you shedding some light with such a wide purview of retail brands. And we appreciate all your insights. Hope we can find another time to chat sometime in the near future. Yeah, Robert and Peter, thanks for having me. And don't forget, you can become a patron of X Chateau by visiting patreon.com slash X Chateau if you'd like to support us to continue delivering content that the wine industry needs. Thanks for joining us. If you loved this episode of X Chateau, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and give a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. Until next time, cheers. Cheers.